Well, it was it was Easter of 2009, and Newsweek released uh, this issue. It says the decline and fall of Christian America. In the cover story uh, entitled "The End of Christian America," John Meacham who's actually the editor of Newsweek, uh, not a random contributor, the editor of Newsweek, he looked at two, during that time, recent surveys of the entire nation that collected data on people's religious belief. He looked at two separate surveys, put the data together, and then declared that a trend was setting in. And the term that he used was post-Christian. That more and more, what we're seeing is a post-Christian America. In other words, that the, the Christian belief is less prevalent in our society as a whole. And he's not the only one to say this, and, and uh, he's not just saying this because he's a, a secular author or anything like that. Actually, um, Al Mohler who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, looked at the same data of those two surveys during that time and agreed uh, with John Meacham. In fact, he's quoted in this article. Uh, he says, Clearly, there is a new narrative, a post-Christian narrative, that is animating large portions of our society. And so for many of you, this, this might not be new. For many of you, this might be something that you already know or sense. But if that was true 10 years ago, in 2009, I think it's certainly true today. Especially in a rapidly developing urban center like where God has placed us. So I wanted to highlight that today because I think it leads us to to ask a critical question. If this is our situation, then then how do we relate to the surrounding society? I don't bring this up so that it's just something that we bemoan or, or complain about, but so that we can look at it and ask that question. How is God calling us to live if this is our situation? Because I think that's such an important question. Because on the one hand, we want to avoid the pendulum swinging all the way over in this direction and just kind of looking down our noses at society or throwing up our hands and and giving up or only posting angry Facebook rants. But on the other end, we want to avoid this end of the pendulum swing where we just kind of follow society. You know, the church is called to be so much more than just a slightly tamer version of society. So this is not the way forward either. So how do we cut through the middle of this? How do we live faithfully in this context? How do we build relationships in this context? How do we make an impact in this context? And that is what our our series for the next few weeks is about, starting last week and, and, and moving through about the next six or seven weeks. That's what we're going to be looking at. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. 
We're going to be looking at examples in the Old Testament of people who lived in situations and environments where their faith was not the norm. So what can we learn from them about relating to the surrounding society? And t- last week we opened up with Jeremiah chapter 29, and, and today we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 1. So I want to invite you to turn there. If you're not already there, it's Daniel chapter 1. If you have a, like a written Bible in front of you, it's, it's right after Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a pretty big book, so if you find Ezekiel, it's right after that. If you have a phone, you just type in Daniel. You should be able to find it. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be following Daniel and his friends for a few weeks now. Just learning from their example. And our key question today is learning from them about how can we relate to the world around us. And what I'll do is, since the, since the text was already read this morning, and I want to thank Ugo because it was a long, a long passage to read. Since it was already read, what I'm going to do is retell it, and then at the end we'll draw out some implications that I think the text is calling us to learn from. So this is Daniel chapter 1. As I retell it, I, I encourage you to be following along. They were young, they were strong, they were smart, they were handsome dudes. They had amazing potential. In fact, they were being groomed to become the future leadership in Jerusalem, the capital city of their people. But all that changed in one day. It's funny how everything can change. In one day, and all of a sudden, the whole trajectory of your life is different. That's what happened to Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, one day. The day that Babylon showed up. You know, when you read the first few verses of this chapter, it's really the action verbs that hit you. It's like an onslaught of action as soon as you open up. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and besieged, and then he brought, and then he placed, and then he commanded, and then bring. In other words, Babylon broke through the stronghold in Jerusalem and carried off some of the valuables and some of the people, including Daniel and his friends. You can imagine them ripped from their families taken for miles and miles, and then placed into an entirely, radically different situation. Babylon. Babylon was a cruel, relentless world power that was dominating everything in its path. In other words, Babylon was to the ancient world what the New England Patriots are to football. The evil empire. (laughs) Did you say like Alabama? Yeah. (laughs) And Daniel and his friends were brought to the heart of it. To the heart of this empire. Placed right into the palace. And they were 
enlisted in this youth program. This youth program designed to, as one scholar put it, Babylonize them. Babylonify these youth. They were taught a new language. They were given new names. All of a sudden, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, imagine being called Daniel your entire life, and then one day someone starts calling you Belteshazzar. Everything's different. And they're forced to study the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were a particular brand of Babylonians who were experts in astrology and mythology and folklore. So that's what Daniel and his friends were immersed in every single day. This is what they were studying. They were studying the Babylonian religious beliefs. And on top of that, they were offered Babylonian food straight from the king's table. The best food in the whole land. Everything was different. Everything was flying at them so hard and so fast. But with all this coming at them, Daniel made a decision. He resolved. He resolved not to eat the Babylonian food. You know, over time he had become friends with Ashpenaz, the head of the the Babylonian staff. And so one day he, he came up to Ashpenaz and said, Hey, Ash, I, I cannot eat this food. I cannot eat this food because of my faith in the one God. And Ashpenaz basically said, I wish I could help you. But if I give you anything else, if I give you less than what the king offers you, and he notices that you're deprived, he will literally cut my head off. There's nothing I can do. So then Daniel thought about it. And he thought, okay, well then what if we don't look deprived? So then he went back to the staff, this time the person just below Ashpenaz. And he said, okay. Okay, well then, this is, this is what I want to propose. Test us. Test us for ten days. And only give us vegetables and water. And if we end up looking deprived, then do with us however you see fit. You see, he was stepping out on a limb. He was taking a risk. And so the palace staff agreed. Daniel's friends joined with him, and so... These four youth only ate vegetables and drank water. And I want you to know this was not about a, a Daniel diet that they were following. This was, for them, this was not about losing 19 pounds in 2019. This was about something so much more than that. This was about their faith in God. And so after 10 days, they were evaluated And sure enough, as it says in the ESV translation, they looked fatter. In other words, they were more nourished. They came out looking healthier. 
they came out, I think, I think maybe you could say like they were more buffer or something like that. Like they just looked stronger. And so the palace staff looked at that and they said, okay, you win. If you're going to look like that, then we'll give you all the vegetables and water that you want for the next three years. And so they did, and, and they flourished. They flourished in what they were eating. They flourished in their studies. And then the day came. The day came when they were to be tested in front of the king. I mean, imagine what kind of test this was like. Some of you are nervous about tests that you might take, uh, whether in school or at your at your job or anything like that. Um, imagine this test. Imagine standing before the king. I mean, in Daniel chapter two, a, a, a group of a group of Nebuchadnezzar staff can't get the answer right to something, and he's like, "Kill them all." Imagine this. And so they step in before the king. He asks them all sorts of questions. And then it says, none were found like them. They flourished. And because of that, they were able to stand before the king. In other words, they had an in with the king. In other words, they were able to serve in the pagan court, in the royal court. And they flourished in the royal court. It says that whenever the king would ask them something, he found them far superior than everybody else in his court. They were ten times better. And so Daniel remained there serving for the rest of the exile. It's funny how everything can change in one day. But it's amazing how God can use it. And it's amazing how he used these four Israelite youth make an impact. Today I want to ask, what can we learn from their impact? What can we learn from the way they conducted themselves there in that context? And I think there's at least three implications that I want to draw out. Three implications that we can learn from them. Number one, as we relate to the surrounding world, number one, We need to recognize what's influencing us. That's where it starts. Just recognize what's influencing us. As soon as these four guys showed up in Babylon, they were enlisted in a program that was deliberately designed to assimilate them. What does assimilate mean? Essentially, it means to lose your distinct identity and start to blend in with everyone else. And it seems like this was actually a military policy of the Babylonians. They would conquer people and then take groups of the conquered people and bring them into Babylon and try to make them Babylonian. Why? Probably because if the conquered people became Babylonian, they would be less likely to rebel in the future and they would lead everyone else from their country to be the same way, to be pro-Babylonian. So the the Babylonians were deliberately trying their hardest to make them Babylonian. 
That's assimilation. So there's tremendous pressure on all sides for them to assimilate. They were brought to a new place. They were given new names. Their old names all mention God or Yahweh. Their new names all mention the gods of the Babylonians. They were, they were immersed in this literature. They're learning this new language. They're given new food. As one scholar puts it, the provision of education, food, and names places them under powerful cultural forces. Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to turn the next generation of Israel into good Babylonians. So what does this have to do with us? Similar to Daniel and his friends, as believers, we're also surrounded with various pressures to conform to the world around us. In other words, to our own Babylon. And what I mean by that is Babylon is a very interesting theme in Scripture. It's actually mentioned as early as Genesis and as late as Revelation. It's in the beginning of Genesis and it's at the end of Revelation. And so when you track this theme all the way through, Babylon, when it's first referred to, it it starts out as a place, a geographical location. But then as you follow how it's used, by the time the Bible ends... It's a symbol. It represents a cultural attitude at odds with God. So Babylon is a cultural attitude at odds with God. And so you and I wake up like Daniel and his friends, and every morning we face some of those cultural attitudes. We, we face some of that pressure to conform to ways and thoughts that are at odds with God. You see, Babylon taught them, and Babylon is teaching us. And another way of saying teaching is discipling. When you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar put these four youth into a very powerful discipleship program. They were being discipled in the ways of Babylon. And you and I, every day, face forces that will disciple us by the influences we take in. According to a 2018 study, so this is a very recent study by Nielsen, the average American adult spends over 11 hours every day Listening to, watching, reading, or interacting with some form of media. In other words, uh, phones, TV, something written, billboards, radio, whatever it is, 11 hours a day of some form of media is entering our minds. That's powerful discipleship. And so the first step is actually just recognizing what it is that's influencing us. What it is that we're, we are allowing into our minds so we can make deliberate decisions like Daniel and his friends. And I want to mention something else here, kind of that springs off of this, but it's in the text. And so I think it's important for us to recognize. King Nebuchadnezzar singled out the youth. He said, I, I want the youth in this program. 
if we think that we as adults are facing pressures every day to conform to certain ways that are at odds with God, our youth are just as much, if not ten times more, in that. And we need to remember that. Like we can't forget our youth. So we need to come alongside of them and listen to them and build relationships with them and guide them to make decisions like Daniel and his friends. We can't forget how important they are. We have to remember our youth. So number one, as we relate to the the world around us, number one, it's just simply recognize what's influencing us and to remember our youth. Number two, the second principle is to draw the line. We're faced with all these pressures coming at us from every angle, all these pressures to conform to ways that are making us good Babylonians, ways that are at odds with God. So what do we do? Do we just toss out the whole thing? Do we just kind of all flee to the cornfields of Iowa in an isolated community where we only listen to Caleb all day, every day, and only watch Pure Flix movies? Nothing against Caleb and Pure Flix movies. Good stuff, and I participate in that regularly. But the point is, we can't become a bubble. We can't become a club. We can't become an island. And we've seen that impulse all throughout the history of the church. That impulse to run and hide and detach, where we feel surrounded by people just like us. That's not what we see from Daniel and his friends. As one scholar noted, the central question of Daniel chapter 1 is this. How could these four young men have gained such success in the pagan court without being tainted by it? In other words, they were completely engaged. They were fully involved in their setting, yet they remained untainted by it. And I think that's a key question for us as well. How can we be engaged? How can we be fully involved, yet at the same time not compromise in our Christian convictions? And I think what it comes down to is a willingness and wisdom to draw the line. You see, look at how verse 8 begins. It says, but Daniel resolved. He made a deliberate decision. In other words, he drew the line. He didn't just lay down and give in to all these influences that were coming at him every day. He resolved. He resolved to say, no thank you to the food and wine that the king provided. I mean, remember, this was the best food in the country. It was the same stuff prepared for probably the most powerful king in the known world at the time. So he could have any chef he wanted. So for all you foodies out there, imagine your favorite celebrity chef preparing you every meal, every day. Like Grant Atkins or whatever. Every meal. That's what Daniel was offered. 
That's what his friends were offered every day, but they said, "Uh uh-uh. Why? Why did they turn it down? There's been a lot of suggestions throughout the years. Some people have suggested that it's because some of the food, some of the meat would have been ceremonially unclean according to Old Testament food laws. But then that doesn't explain why they said no to the wine as well. So then other people have said, well, well, maybe it's because they knew that the meat would be sacrificed to idols, so then they don't want to eat it. But then it also seems like the, the Babylonians also offered vegetables and grains to idols. So the vegetables would have been too. And then other people have said, well, maybe it's because they were wanting to follow a vegetarian diet. And while eating vegetables and drinking water is a healthy thing, eating clean meat is never prohibited in Scripture. So why would it be an issue here all of a sudden? It seems like maybe it could be partly some of all these things. But I think the best explanation is this. Food is tied to our identity. And so, for Daniel and his friends, they were saying, in essence, by what we eat, we are reminded every day that we are not at the heart of it. We are not Babylonian people. We are God's people. We are not Nebuchadnezzar's people who depend on Nebuchadnezzar's table. We are God's people who depend on God's provision. It was about identity. They were keeping their identity distinct in the midst of Babylon. They drew the line. They would not fully assimilate. So are we willing to do the same? We need to be engaged in the world, yet at the same time, know when to draw the line. Fully involved, yet resolved to follow our convictions. It's not always easy to draw the line. I realize that. The very first sermon I preached at Good News years ago uh, uh, was about standing out. And I'll always remember someone coming up to me afterwards and saying in utter honesty, I want that. I want to stand out. But it is so hard to be a Christian at my job. Some of you know how hard it is. For these guys, it was risky as well. They literally put their necks on the line, and for some of us, it probably involves risk too. The risk of being ridiculed, the risk of straining or even losing relationships, the risk of being excluded, the risk of maybe putting a promotion in jeopardy. But these guys did it, and they show us that it's possible, and we need to know that. We need to know that it's possible to draw the line at work. We, we need to know that it's possible to draw the line at school. We need to know that it's possible to draw the line at home. We need to know it's possible to draw the line when we're out and about or when we're with friends or when we're in the dating scene. The question is, where is God calling you to draw the line and be distinct? Be distinct as a Christ follower, follower and follow your convictions. Yes, it ain't easy, but I do think it's worth it. I think it's worth it because I believe God will meet us there. I think that's what we see in Daniel and his friends. They took that step and God met them there. And I believe he'll do that as well for us. I believe he'll meet us there. And what I mean is 
as we step out like that, we will meet with God and experience him in ways that we never would have. I'm not promising like it will all turn out and it'll just wrap a bow on it. It will all be a happy ending. But he will meet us and we will experience him in ways that we never would have if we would have just laid low. And and number two, I also think it's worth it because people will maybe take notice. I think that's also what we see in Daniel and his friends. The, The palace staff took notice. They saw that what Daniel and his friends were doing by following God was life-giving. They noticed that. And I believe that at times others will notice this in us as well. And it will open up doors to have conversations about God that we would have never dreamed of. That's what we see later in the book of Daniel. These guys are able to testify about God. And so for us, I believe it could really open up opportunity to genuinely share him. It's worth it. Draw the line. So as we relate to the surrounding society, recognize what's influencing us, draw the line. And then number three, be great workers. That's what we learn from this chapter. Look at verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. As for these youth... God gave them. What did he give them? God gave them learning and skill. For what? Take a look. God gave them learning and skill to be full-time pastors and preachers and missionaries. No. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. In other words, God gave them divinely inspired ability to do great work in their secular jobs. In the royal court. God endowed them with abilities in secular fields. So listen, please, don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me say that the calling to be a pastor or missionary is important. It is. And some of you this morning might be called in that direction. And and, and as a church, we need to champion that. But some of you may be called to secular fields. And as a church, we need to champion that just as much. Sometimes we treat, we treat the calling of, of, of pastor or someone in full-time ministry as the only calling that there is. And all y'all in secular jobs are doing less important stuff. And I just want to push against that lie. Like, like there's God's work over here, and over here there's all the other work. And that's just not true. Listen. If you have a secular job or whatever you do outside of the four walls of this church, you, you're just as much as called as I am or Pastor Ralph is. Whatever you do at home or out there, whether five hours a week or 50, it could just as much be called God's work. It's for God, it's used by God, and it's called by God. Sometimes we think think that work is just that thing we do to make ends meet, and real ministry happens when we show up at church. And listen, 
Real ministry happens when we show up at church. That's very important. But this morning, I want you to know it's very important that real ministry happens when you show up at whatever you do. It happens when you show up in a secular field or at home and you do it for God. It happens when you're a student and you do it for God. And if you're unable to work, I want you to know you still have a calling and an incredible purpose and divinely inspired abilities to serve God every day. Don't let America define you by what you do. It's who you serve. I want you to know the significance you have in what you do. Uh, Sometimes we use the title ordained minister, and I understand why that's important. Ordained means we're recognizing that this person is called by the Holy Spirit for this task. But I think in the same way, you could start calling yourself ordained. If people recognize your calling. You could say, I'm, I'm an ordained um, realtor. I'm an ordained tax law expert. I'm an ordained teacher. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has set me apart for this task. Because the Holy Spirit has given me skill to flourish in this field. And other people have come alongside of me. The church has come alongside of me and said, yes, you do that. Listen, some of you are called to full-time ministry. I don't want to discourage that. But some of you are ordained for the secular field. So with all this talk about living in this surrounding society and how we need to recognize what's influencing us and how we need to draw the line, (coughs) excuse me, We can come out with an overly negative view of culture. Like it's just that thing that we avoid. It's just that thing that we keep at a safe distance. But we can't forget how how necessary it is for us to contribute to and bless the surrounding culture. We need to be a part of this society and we need to be pro the flourishing of people in this society. It's so necessary. So how do we do that? Daniel and his friends show us that one major way is through being great workers. They were used by God in the royal court. They made an impact. They were a blessing. They were the best workers they could be to the fullest extent that they possibly could be. So this is what I want to say for us. Do we, really, do we want to make an impact on the surrounding culture? Do we want to be God's representatives in this world? Part of the answer is for you to be the best worker that you can possibly be. Whatever work looks like for you, whether it's out there, whether it's at home, whatever it is that you do, I pray that we would burst through the walls of this church with a renewed sense of passion and purpose for what it is that we do because God can use that. God can use us being the best workers that we can possibly be. And in that, by using those God-given abilities, 
we will make an impact on the surrounding society. Be great workers. So as we relate to the surrounding world, here's a few principles. Number one, recognize what's influencing us and remember our youth. Number two, draw the line. And number three, be great workers, whatever it is you do. Be great workers. I want to call the band up. And um, this is what I want to ask. What makes this possible? What makes all this possible? What makes Daniel chapter 1 possible? If you have a Bible open still, look real quick. I'd like to invite you to look at your Bible during the conclusion. Because oftentimes at conclusions we're all like... So look real quick at verse 9. It says, and God gave... Daniel 1, verse 9. And God gave. Now look at verse 17. As for these four youth, God gave. God gave. In other words, what makes this chapter possible? Behind it all is the God who gives. Behind it all is God's grace. God's grace makes living like this possible. Yes, it was the actions of these four youth. But it was also God's grace in the first place. So I want to talk real quick about God's grace, and then I want to talk about our actions. For us, the greatest expression of God's grace, the greatest expression of the God who gives in our lives, is the fact that he gave his son Jesus, who willingly gave his life in our place, that when we believe and take hold of it, we can be totally right in God's eyes and and brought into relationship with him forever. And so when we get that, When we take hold of that, we are set free to live like this. We are set free to make Daniel 1 a reality. Why? Because there's no longer a burden placed on us. It's no longer an unreachable expectation because Jesus has already met all of God's expectations for us. So now we are set free to live this out out of joy. To live this out propelled by gratitude because we want to please the one who has done so much for us. God's grace sets us free to live this way. You know, it's also an expression of his grace. That the moment we believe we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And because of that. Because of that, we have the joy and we have the power to live this out. Likewise, I want to I want to talk about the actions, um, the actions that this involves. So, number one, I just want to press on these areas a little bit more. How and what way is God calling you to respond to this passage? Number one, recognize what's influencing us. Do we need to make some hard decisions? about what we are allowing to influence us. Do we need to assess what's entering our minds? And I'm not necessarily talking about quantity, but I'm talking about influencing us. What is influencing us? And do we need to make hard decisions in that area? And also, do we need to 
do, do we need to renew our sense of how important our youth are? How much they are in this? And draw the line. In what way is God leading you to draw the line and be distinct? And follow your convictions. And then three, be great workers. You need to ask God for a renewed purpose and passion in what you do. So that you can do it with all the excellence you can muster for him. Daniel and his four friends teach us how to impact the surrounding world. And when we, by God's grace, follow their actions, I believe we'll make an impact as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness to us and all that you give to us. Lord, I ask that um, you would help us to uh, relate to our surrounding world and that you would lead us in living faithfully here where you have placed us. I pray that you would press into our hearts how you're calling us to respond to this passage. And I thank you for your help in living it out. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.